millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today we have episode 333, big 333. We're going to answer three great listener questions we got. So without any further ado, let's dive on in. So we got the first one in is, my name is Tyron and I'm here from Kenya living in Finland at the moment. He just opened a brokerage account and he had a couple questions. So the first part of the question he's asking, might you have any metrics for evaluating stocks in the European market, which might help my investing in the future? He says he really appreciates the insights we give him from the podcast and they've made him very passionate about investing in the stock market. That's awesome. So what are your thoughts on Tyron's question about metrics for the European market? It's a great question. I would say in general, the metrics for the European market are going to be the same as the metrics for the American market. With the exception that there's a kind of advanced concept called, is it country risk premium that mm-hmm. Professor yep. Evan talks about? So yep. without getting into the nitty gritty, basically, if you are investing in a country where the political system is not as stable as something like the United States, keep in mind that investors might stay away from it and that might make those stocks in those countries cheaper than you might find in the United States. And that's because of what they call the country risk premium. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I feel like the metrics are the same. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, they are the same. I think the there's a couple things you probably need to kind of account for. Like if you're comparing you know, a company in the United States versus a company in Europe, you're going to want to account for the currency differences. So when you read the financial statements of a company coming out of Europe, for example, let's you know, pick Ajin, a company that I'm very familiar with, they report all of their earnings in their financials in the euro. And so if you 
look at it on a dollar amount, like if you look at it on a currency amount, maybe that's a better way of putting it. If you look at it at a currency amount, it's going to be different. So if you look at the revenue for Ajin in euros versus dollars, depending on what the exchange rate is, it's going to be a different metric. So if you're used to analyzing companies based on the dollar, and then you look at the whatever currency you may be looking at, that's important. I remember the Motorin was talking about that in one of his lectures is when you first start to read a financial report, whether it's in Europe or whether it's the United States, you always need to understand what currency they're talking about in the statement so you don't get confused when you're trying to work the numbers, if you will. If you're trying to analyze the financial statement, metrics are going to be metrics. So a ratio is a ratio. It doesn't matter whether it's in a euro or a dollar. So 20% return on equity is the same across the board. So that's one thing I think you probably need to keep in mind the other thing that is you need to keep in mind is the accounting practices are a little different in Europe than they are in the United States. And so sometimes the way the, the statements may be set up may be a little bit different than what you're used to. They may put terms in different places. I've noticed that the balance sheet, for example, sometimes they will put the accounts, they will put the long-term assets above the short-term assets on the asset part of the equation. And I've even seen the liabilities listed before the assets on a few too. So there can be a little bit different. And so I think that's something to probably keep in mind. But overall, a PE ratio is a PE ratio. A discounted cash flow model is a discounted cash flow model. The debt to equity, whatever metrics that you are used to using for the United States, you would want to use the same or Europe or any country for that matter. Wouldn't If you're investing in companies in, in East Asia or Asia or the South America, well, you know, Brazil, you're going to want to use the same metrics. It's all the same, but just make sure, I think the biggest trip would be making sure you account for what kind of currency you're working in. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And then taxes too. I mean, mm-hmm. if we were to compare, I don't know what the situation is for Ajin, but just to take some, you know, if you take operating income for Ajin and Visa and you're only looking at operating income and you're not looking at net income, which is after tax, there could be some differences. So a lot of times when I look at American companies, I'm focusing a lot on operating income and things like that. But if taxes are different, different countries try to keep that in mind too. Yeah, that's a very good point. Excellent addition. All right. All right. So let's move on to the next question, which is... Okay, this is from... Majestic California says, Hi guys, great podcast. What free sites are available to obtain all relevant financial ratios and revenue sources in detail? The ones I've seen all seem to require a paid subscription. This is from Sergio. So Andrew, do you have a a list of tools that you like to use that could help Sergio out? Yeah. uh, Thanks for writing in Sergio. I'll just talk about the same tools I always do. Each of these have subscription options. I happen to subscribe to a couple of them, but they don't all require it. QuickFS.net being one, finviz.com being another. And can you use BAMSEC without mm-hmm. logging in? You can. Yeah. You just can't use like the highlights feature and stuff. Right. So all three of those are all great websites and they can get you probably 90% of the way there mm-hmm. for, with the free features. So right. those would be my three. Um, which ones would you add? I think the only one that I would add to that great list would be finchatio.io. They do have a lot of it is behind the paywall, but they do have a free feature that allows you to see, you know, a good portion of what you need to see to get you started. 
uh, for sure and can be very, very helpful. Uh, that's a great one. Ticker is another one that offers a free service. Uh, Guru Focus does to a certain extent. So those are and Koifin. Those are probably the four. FinChat is my favorite, but the other three also offer you free services as well. There was another one that I was going to mention too. And now another two that I don't use, but I know are out there and I've, I've seen people say that they really like them as Google Finance and Yahoo Finance. They also offer different you know, ability to see free stuff for a certain amount of, of years and different ratios and whatnot as well. I personally don't use them, but I have seen a lot of people that have liked those as well. I forgot to say Seeking Alpha. Oh, yeah. 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 Seeking Alpha, you do have to give them your email address. So you do have mm-hmm. to make an account, but you don't have to pay mm-hmm. to use a lot of their features too. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you want to see 20 years of data, you're going to have to... It's behind a paywall. But if you want to see, I think, three to five years of the financial information, you can find it all right there. Yep. Yep. So hopefully that helps, Sergio. Yeah, exactly. All right. Let's move on to the next question. So this one is, Plug's $1 billion equity raise. Uh, should you keep investing in a company that does this, or is that a sign of big future problems? And this is from A. Salvatore 03. So maybe before we kind of dive into answering that particular question, maybe we could talk about what is an equity raise first. Yeah, that's a very important, I think. And I believe it needs some backdrop too, just to really understand because not all businesses are the same and not all of them are in the same part of their life cycle. So for the think of how businesses in the stock market generally go, they generally go from a phase of super high, fast, explosive growth to something that's more stable and potentially long-lasting to maturation and either being gobbled up by another company or fading into the abyss or perpetually always just seemingly in decline. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, I don't want to throw names out there, but I've held one of them. But basically if a company is in the high, super high growth phase and they need a lot of capital, in other words, they need a lot of cash and they need to make a lot of investments and they need to buy a lot of inventory, all of these things that they need to do to reinvest, to grow at a super high rate, a lot of those companies will tend to be in a raising capital stage instead of a more neutral stage neutral stage or returning capital stage. And so really the question, all businesses that are public in the stock market, they can all raise equity, which is another way of saying raising capital. They can all do that at any time. But if it's a company who is not in that stage where it makes sense for them to do it, that's probably a problem. But if it's a company that is very early in their life cycle and they have good places to put that capital and it makes sense for them to be raising the capital, then that's probably a better fit. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of how you look at equity raises or raising capital in general? Like, Kind of along that life cycle is something I miss there. What's the best way to steward your wealth? Looking to find great businesses with a margin of safety? My advice, Value Spotlight at valuespotlight.com. As a finance nerd, you would assume that I have my money game all together. Well, shocker, I didn't. Until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things I want to do. It's my GPS for money. 
Monarch is a top-rated, all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Monarch has a tool that allows you to easily import your data from Mint and keep all of your tags and categories. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product. They release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. No, I think that's pretty right on. I think if you think about early stage companies, they have they really only have, if they're not generating enough free cash flow to self-reinvest, then they either have to go to the equity markets like you're talking about or they go to the debt markets. And it's harder, I think, for earlier stage companies to raise debt because they don't have a history for people to give them their money in, in a sense for debt. And it's easier for them to go out in the markets and sell their shares to try to raise money because that's a more familiar, I guess, place for people to think about it. And I think, you know, your point about equity raises and just if they're in a place in their development to do that, that's a good sign. So maybe we could talk a little bit about how an equity raise impacts an investor. Oh, that's yeah, that's also very important to understand. So think of your share that you own as part ownership of a business. And if we use our metaphor of the Pie for me, it's a pizza pie. But for you, it can be something that more inferior. Okay. No, it's inferior. <laughs> Not inferior. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Should we do a pizza break like Elon did? <laughs> Elon and Joe. I'm, I don't I'm think I don't think it would be as popular as he did it. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting hungry. <laughs> so, if all the owners that own Plug, which is Plug Power ticker PLUG Plug, everybody who owns it, we each own our little slice. And so if a company were to raise equity, they're basically going to divide that up a little bit more. And so what they're doing is they're kind of making that pie bigger. And so if your slice is staying the same, now it's actually a smaller slice. And that's basically what they're doing to raise equity. The So the downside to you as a shareholder is you now own less of the company. So if that was the only change and nothing else changed, then the stock price would go down is basically what would happen because you have the same business, but there's more owners. So there's more pieces of the pie. And so part of your value of your piece of the pie is less. That makes a share. That means the stock price is lower because that share of stock is a piece of the pie. But what the company gets out of making that pie bigger is they're 
raising cash. And so in this case, a billion dollars, that's a billion dollars that the company now has that it didn't have previously. So it sounds like free money to them, right? Because they didn't. But so where they have to balance is making sure that for shareholders who now have a smaller piece, is that billion dollars going to grow the business that much more? Where your small piece of the pie is at least not less or maybe even goes higher if you can generate higher growth from it. So what they do with the billion dollars is also a very, very important piece of this because your ownership slice is smaller, but the potential for the business to be bigger could make the after effect positive for you. Mm-hmm. Like we could all own a lemonade stand. Would you rather own 100% of a lemonade stand or 1% of Apple? Right. So right. same thing where by reducing your ownership, you have that higher potential of gain because now they have more money to be able to reinvest in growth. Mm-hmm. But if they don't reinvest that growth and get that growth that they're looking for, then it can be very, very destructive. Right. Okay. How does that impact an investor for plug, for example? So use a scenario real quick. Let's say that they do raise this billion dollars and two years from now, they come back and need to raise a million five. How does that, as you as an investor, how do you react to that? Is that indifferent, good thing, bad thing? Like, does it depend? Yeah, it's a great question. I do think it does depend. Again, it goes back to the the question, what are they doing with the cash? What kind of results is it generating? And can they use those results again? So I like Tesla as an example because they had to do this when they were first scaling out. And, you know, I don't own a Tesla and I'm not really an expert, but I know enough to be dangerous. So if you think about what is it, the Model 3 now that's the most popular? Is it the Model S? Don't hold my feet to the fire okay. on that. Whichever one it was, right? Let's say they needed a couple billion dollars to build the factories mm-hmm. to be able to meet the demand they had for that car. Makes a lot of sense for them to do that. Now, if we're to fast forward to today, if the demand's not there, but then they also want to do the exact same playbook that they did, say, five, six years ago, that might not be as good for the company now as it was back then. And it all depends on, you know, is there that much more demand for the Model 3 that this extra $2 billion today will be so much more impactful than if they just wait for the company to generate it? Mm-hmm. And so that's how I would look. I would try to use that kind of idea for plug power to say, okay, if they do raise capital again, were they successful in their last capital raise? Did they use that to fuel growth? And then is there another opportunity that they're going to put this capital into to get them to that next level of growth? Right. That makes sense. So does it does this kind of I guess, generation of cash to invest. Does it make more sense for a company like Plug to be doing this than, let's say, Microsoft? I would say in general, yes. But to take the exception to every rule, our one of our heroes, Warren Buffett, mm. he did this in 2000, 2001, when he acquired Genry. Yeah. When you acquire a company using shares, which is what they did for Genry, that's the same thing as as issuing equity basically and, and receiving the cash. Mm-hmm. And so you could argue when he did that, it was actually a very good thing because his shares were overvalued. Mm-hmm. So to me, I think it's very common for companies in that raising capital stage to do an equity raise. A company in the mature stage could do it if they think their stock's overvalued and they also think that the opportunity is so good that they need the cash now. Right. I think definitely like 
the number of times that that's a good idea is probably a fraction compared to when it is for raising capital for mm-hmm. a growth company. But again, I'm not an expert in growth companies, early stage companies, and companies in that raising capital stage. It's a very high risk area with a lot of failure rate. So I kind of stay away from those. But if it was me, I wouldn't look at it as like an obvious red flag right away. Right. It's a common thing to do. Right. So I came across this chart from Chris Mayer on Twitter a few weeks ago and I saved it. And it's kind of an interesting chart. And I'm not going to give you all the numbers, but basically what he's saying here is that a five year market cap growth required to offset dilution. So I don't know what the market cap is for plug, but let's say that it offsets, it dilutes shareholders by 1%. So to offset that 1% dilution, the market cap needs to grow 5% in over a five-year period. If it dilutes it by 2%, that goes up to 10.4%. If it goes up to 10% dilution, which God forbid, then you got to have a 61% market cap growth over five years to offset the dilution. So those numbers, the lower numbers are not as scary, but the bigger numbers are scary. And I think that's, to me, that kind of highlights what you were saying about the danger of a company, you know, really diluting itself. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, that's actually a perfect example of how, where company stock prices, when they do this matters a lot Mm -hmm. because you're going to get higher dilution when your stock price isn't as high. Right. How do you think like the compensation dilution, does that factor into this as well as far as like the overall dilution of a company? Yeah. Shareholders? Dilution's dilution. Um, Right. All dilution counts. Yeah, right. (laughs) Do you think one is better slash worse than the other? So for example, let's say the plug is doing an equity raise, but they're not really diluting through management compensation or employee compensation. Do you think that's better or do you think like what like Meta does where they have a lot of employee incentive dilution compared to equity raises or do you, does it not matter? Uh, it's, it's a good question. Uh, I don't have data behind what's the hit rate of an equity raise versus share-based compensation. Mm-hmm. It does feel like share-based compensation is becoming more and more widely accepted with Silicon Valley and all the successes of Meta and Google Mm -hmm. and all of that. And there is validity to that. I mean, Charlie Munger says, look at the incentives. Right. And if you can incentivize your very talented workforce with stock options, that can be a really great thing for the company. Mm -hmm. But I do question, you know, when you have a company that's kind of on cruise control or they're saying that our moat's so strong. If it really was that strong, why are you dishing out stock options like candy? Right. So I think a healthy bit of... Not to say that it's wrong or bad or bad for shareholders, but just I think a healthy dose of skepticism mm-hmm. is helpful. What about you? I mean, that you could kind of fall on either side of that and I don't think there's a wrong answer here. So where do you stand on that? What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. 
Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. It depends. So maybe I could try to look at it in maybe three kind of buckets. So one bucket would be they dilute shareholders by using equity raises to try to grow the business. And that in and of itself, I don't think is awful, especially depending on where they are in their life cycle. I think that, you know, that's probably the prudent way for them to try to raise money to grow. Then you have the bucket of doing equity raises and diluting employees offering share-based compensation or incentives at the same time as they're doing equity raises. And there is some logic to doing that. But I think also the overcompensation of employees by giving a lot of stock options as opposed to actual cash, I think can be dangerous down the road and something that could be scary for shareholders, especially if you come into the company late, later, because now all of a sudden you're buying a smaller pie. And when those shares are executed, then you get an even smaller part of the pie and it takes away from the profitability of the company. So it can be kind of a dual-edged sword there. And then you have the third bucket where they aren't doing equity raises, but they're giving, you know, incentives, share incentives out like candy, but then they're also buying back shares to try to neutralize that. And I'm kind of mixed on how I feel about that. And I think it really, you know, just it really kind of depends and you have to look at it company by company. I guess that's kind of how I try to try to look at this idea when I'm looking at different companies and trying to assess capital allocation skills. I guess maybe to kind of wrap up this idea, what are some ways that investors could measure how well they allocate the capital? So in in Plug's example, if they raise a billion dollars and they use it to reinvest in the business, how could Sergio and other investors, uh, Salvatore, uh, how could he or they figure out how effective was it? Yeah. If Plug was profitable, it'd be a lot easier to do this, probably. Right. Yeah, right. I think looking at something like return on invested capital is a great way to do it. Mm-hmm. And looking at that change over time. So I think it can be as simple as that because that can tell you exactly how profitable whatever it is that they did with the money ended up being. Mm-hmm. And it can also tell you if they overpay, whether that's like overpaying on CapEx or overpaying in an acquisition that can show up right away. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're like privy to the information, for example, if when Microsoft bought Activision, you could very clearly see Activision's financials. Mm-hmm. So if it was a dip in ROIC, but you saw that longer term, it would not be a dip, then maybe take the ROIC. A little bit lightly, but I think it's a great it's a great way to kind of fact check the narrative. Mm-hmm. You don't want to see ROIC falling precipitously because that doesn't always mean it's bad capital allocation, but a lot of times it probably is. Mm-hmm. But there's more metrics. What do you think? I think two ways that I would probably try to look at it would be number one would be maybe return on equity. Just looking at maybe if it's not net income profitable, but let's say it's operating income profitable, then I may look at instead of in subbing out the net income part of the equation, return on equity for those aren't familiar, it's net income over shareholders equity. And 
if I replace the net income with operating income and compare it to the shareholder equity of the business, then I could give me kind of a, maybe a gauge that I could use to compare this year, the next year, and the next year to the previous year. That would be one way. Another way you could potentially do it would be to look at, Buffett calls it the dollar earnings test, where you compare the growth of the market cap to the growth of the retained earnings, which is part of shareholders' equity in the balance sheet. And you could compare those two, and that would give you an idea of how well. So every dollar of retained earnings they generate, if they grow the market cap by over a dollar, then that's a great thing. And that'd be another way you could potentially do it. But those are the only two ways that I can think of that I would try to look at it if it's not a profitable company. Yeah, I wonder if it doesn't need to be more complicated than that. Mm -mm. I mean, these companies have to report profit for a reason. Right. And so you should see it. Yes. You can see long-term trends for sure. Yep, exactly. I, I mean, if you see it, you know, like to your point, if you see a company that's maybe not profitable now, but their profit, their negative profit has gone from negative 100 million to negative 50 million to negative 15 million and negative 4 million, you can see that they're trending in the right direction towards profitability. You can kind of project that forward to some sort of reasonable amount. And that could be a way to measure it as well. Yes. Yeah. Very well said. And I guess as it relates to plug power, that is not what we're seeing here. Seeing a, a loss of 500, almost 600 million, and then 400 million, and then 658 million. So when I look at numbers like that, you know, they're almost losing as much in operating profit as they made in revenue. Oh boy. So it's a super fast growing company from a percentage basis. But if the concept's not profitable, how viable is the concept? Right. So if you're an investor here, unfortunately, you probably already lost a ton. Mm-hmm. And you might be just hanging on because you're just hoping for that miracle. Mm-hmm. If that's what you want to do, more power to you. But when I look at the financial situation here, it is not like Tesla or it is not like some of the other Uber or something companies that generally got more and more profitable over time. Right. This is an explosion downwards. And like the ship has a gaping hole in it and has for three years. And I would say, be careful. Right. Sounds like it's lighting cash on fire. Yeah. To say the least. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So I guess maybe to wrap this up, how should people generally kind of look at this kind of dilution? And do you think you need to take it company by company to assess whether it's a positive or a negative? Yeah, I would say Take it by company by company. Okay. Okay. All right, folks. Well, with that, we will go ahead and wrap up our conversation for today. I wanted to thank everybody for taking the time to send us such fantastic questions. We really enjoyed answering these and hopefully you guys got some good takeaways from this. If you do have a question you're dying to know the answer to, please reach out to us. You can send us questions at newsletter at einvesting.com. You can also reach out to me at Dave Ahern on LinkedIn, and we're also on Twitter. You can ask questions in any of those places, and we'll answer them here on the air for you. So with that, I will go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, 
Have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and/or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at eInvestingForBeginners.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.